You're listening to Dedication Point, a podcast and speaker series produced by the Birds of Prey NCA partnership with support from the Conservation Lands Foundation. I'm Matt Podolsky. Season three of Dedication Point is focused on prey species in the Morley Nelson Snake River Birds of Prey National Conservation Area. This national conservation area was established in large part to protect the area's uniquely dense population of raptors. But these raptors couldn't survive without robust populations of prey species. In our first two episodes of this season, we discussed the conservation status of the Paiute ground squirrel and the black-tailed jackrabbit. Our third episode focused on the reptiles of the NCA. And this, our fourth episode of the season, will be focused on insects. My name is Ian Robertson. I'm a biology professor at Boise State University, and my specialty is working on plant-insect interactions. Tell me a little bit about your research. Like, you know, could you give me an overview of like, like your specialty or maybe like some of the projects that you're actively engaged with now? Most of my research over the past 20 years has been actually on a rare plant called slick spot peppergrass. And my research has been focusing on how insects interact with that plant. Initially, I started doing work on pollinators to see if the plant was pollinated by insects. And in the course of doing that, we also noticed that there were ants on these plants taking away the seeds. These are called harvester ants, and they're native here, but we were noticing they seem to be taking seeds in large numbers. So I started doing research on the impact these uh, ants may have on the plant's reproductive success. I also have uh, graduate students who work on related topics, sometimes uh, with this plant. Other times it's on tangential projects. So I had a student just graduate who's been working on harvester and seed predation and how it might influence restoration outcomes in terms of the seeds that are put out following fire. Do the ants like these seeds? How does the distribution of these seeds influence whether they're taken by the ants? Um, I have another student currently working on pollination biology, looking how uh, non-native species might influence the pollination of the native forbs we have. Um, and also she's been looking at the effects of Vexar, which is a protective covering that goes around um, native forbs when they're first planted to see if that influences whether insects will visit it or not. Do they, does it uh, disturb their senses to the point where they don't go to these sites um, or does it have no effect? It's interesting, right? And I guess if someone were to say to me like, oh, I'm an entomologist, but I also am really interested in conservation. I would think like, oh, you're trying to figure out issues that different insect species are dealing with. Right. But it's, it's, it's not, it's more about like the interactions and how those interactions affect native plants and pollinator species that might be in threat. How did you get to that point? Like where did, how, you know, what led you to that type of research? Well, I mean, I guess I, w I would start by saying as an ecologist, which is how I kind of view myself, we are interested in how organisms interact, whether it be insects and plants or, or what have you. So it's to me, it's not an unnatural connection. In fact, I was never trained as an entomologist. I never took entomology as a student. Um, but as a graduate student, I started working on bark beetles, insects. Mm -hmm. um, 
and looking at their behaviors. And when I moved to Boise after taking this job, I was approached by someone from the BLM uh, who said, would you be interested in figuring out if this plant called Slick Spot Peppergrass has insect pollinators? And you know, I was up to the challenge, so I started to do that research. And it has just led to more and more questions. And in the course of that, you start working with the, the biologists locally and agencies who recognizes the conservation needs for this plant, and that starts to become part of the thought process, is you know, what is affecting this plant survival? So I have the work on pollinators, uh, harvester ants and seed predation, and more recently I've been uh, working with some colleagues to develop projects looking at their genetics, the plant's genetics, mm. and the conservation biology from that perspective. So even though my training is all in ecology and now insect plant interactions, there's opportunities to do research outside of that, which to me is really exciting because I don't know how to do that research, but I recognize that the questions are important. And at Boise State, we have some amazing people that have expertise in other areas that I can leverage or I can work with them to try and really answer a lot of questions that will be helpful to this plant. Gotcha. Maybe you could kind of paint a picture for us of like what those study sites look like and what it's like to um, work in the NCA. Maybe if there are like some details about like where specifically slick spot peppergrass is found. The sites I work at, um, they vary in quality. Some are highly disturbed either through fire or through invasive plants or both. Others are closer, I'd say, to pristine. I mean, they're not quite pristine, but they have um, complete sagebrush uh, cover, which is much more natural. And so that allows us to compare these types of sites. I've done some research on how the vegetation, whether it's sagebrush dominated or grass dominated, influences the density of colonizing by harvester ants. Mm -hmm. And it has a big effect. Mm -hmm. They don't like nesting in sagebrush areas and they don't like nesting around cheatgrass too much, ironically. They like open spaces though, and there's lots of um, native grasses that are used in restoration, such as uh, Sandberg's bluegrass, and the ants really like that, and so their density is high in those areas. So that's sort of one, one aspect. When you look at the NCA, it's, it's a highly variable place. And some of the nicest sites are in the Orchard Combat Training Center of the Idaho Army National Guard. Mm -hmm. and much of my research takes place there as well. As far as slick spot peppergrass goes, this is a, a, federally, a federally threatened plant. Um, it has a very narrow distribution. It's endemic to Idaho, southwestern Idaho. It's found between Glens Ferry and the Oregon border. And it's uh, bordered by, or at least the foothills, are the northern extent of its range. And then the Snake River is the southern extent, except for a population down in the Jarbage, which is further south. Um, the plant is uh, specialized. It lives in uh, microsites known as slick spots, which are soil formations that have, they're shallow depressions. Um, they hold water at higher levels than the surrounding environment, but they're also much higher in uh, salt and minerals. And for most plants, they don't tolerate that. So these patches generally look fairly bare, but slick spot peppergrass is adapted to these environments, and so it lives exclusively within them. And the plant, in, within its range, is very fragmented. There are little places where these slick spots exist that the, the plant also resides. 
but they are small in size. And so there's concern that these sites have lost connectivity in terms of pollinators moving between them. Between them. Um, so the, the population genetics question comes in here. Mm -hmm. um, what's happening to the gene flow? Are there bottlenecks? Are there um, losses due to uh, genetic drift and things like that? And so it's important to, to think about the plant's genetic diversity. So that's you know the genetic side of things. Insects are what pollinate these plants, and insects are the things that move the pollen around, and that's going to influence the, the movement of genes. So when, when populations are fragmented, it's possible that insects aren't getting between populations, mm -hmm. and that's cutting off the gene flow. Mm -hmm. So that's something we're trying to investigate to see, um, you know, what are the consequences of this? How extensive is it, and how critical might it be to the actual uh, genetic diversity within the plant? which is very important to the plant's survival because that provides the, um, the building block or the blocks this plant needs to adapt to changing conditions, gotcha. right? And gotcha. um, losses of this diversity can have an adverse effect if conditions change and the plant can't adjust to that, then those populations will wink out. And when they're not connected, it means they also can't be recolonized very easily. So you can see a, a decline in the populations as a result of this uh, slow and steady degradation of the habitat. Right. You've also been involved in research that's looking at the like the rate at which harvester ants um, like harvest the seeds of, yes. of slick spot peppergrass. Yeah, harvester ants have a focal. They have a nest that can last 15 to 20 years. I mean, if the queen survives, um, she can. If she lives that long, the nest can stay active for that long. If she dies, the nest dies with her. And these nests are peppered throughout, you know, the region, especially in open grassy areas. And the environment here naturally was, or the habitat was naturally sagebrush dominated. And now when fire moves through areas, the sagebrush is removed and exotic grasses like cheatgrass and so forth move in. And it takes a long time for that sagebrush to recover if it recovers at all. And the problem though for peppergrass is that the sagebrush in many ways protected those slick spots mm -hmm. from harvester ant activity. Mm -hmm. Now when those, when the sagebrush is removed, there's open areas where the ants nest in high densities and that may be scattered all throughout slick spots where peppergrass is growing. And harvester ants are foragers that basically, um, they move away from their nest foraging for seeds and they come back to their nest. And so around their nest there's intense seed predation and then it tends to uh, fade a little bit as you move further away, but they can go up to 20 meters from their nest, which is 20 large paces. That's a long way for such a small animal. We found that the slick spots that harbor peppergrass represent intense or very dense patches of seeds, and the ants like these seeds. So if their nests are nearby a slick spot, they basically just move in on mass when the seeds are dropping, which is in late July, and they take as much as they can, and in some cases, just about all of it. And so that's gonna be potentially a serious threat to the plant survival if it can't uh, regenerate through seed propagation. And through surveys, I've found that somewhere around 65 to 75% of slick spots uh, have an ant colony located within 20 meters of them. Mm. So it's not a, an occasional problem for them, it's something that's, that's very prevalent. And you know, some of my research is aimed at trying to figure out just how much of a 
consequence would this be for the plants? Because harvester ants have a finite number of seeds they can eat in the summer. So if the plant patch produces more than that, many seeds are going to escape. But this, this plant's numbers uh, fluctuates widely between years. And it has a lot to do with the winter conditions and the precipitation that occurs. So when you have bad years, I mean drought years or when the rain doesn't fall at the right time, you can have very few plants that are flowering and producing seeds. And if there's an ant colony sitting next to it, they will take just about everything the plant produces. On the other hand, you have some years where the plant numbers are quite good and there's lots of seed being produced. And it may be in those years that those slick spots are replenished with seeds because the seeds don't stay on the surface. They, they um, become part of what's called a seed bank in the soil and they can remain there for years, decades perhaps waiting for the conditions to be right. So it's possible that this plant is well adapted to deal with high levels of seed predation if occasionally lots of seeds are produced. But until you really ask that question, it's only a guess. And so a lot of my research has been aimed lately at trying to establish how much are ants taking um, and is this a, a potential problem. And I've found some, some things that are not surprising. When ant colonies are closer to the patch, they take a lot more seeds. And when there are fewer plants within a patch, the proportion of seeds taken from each plant is quite high. So, you know, the more plants there are, the more buffered they are against the overall seed predation. But then comes in the question of, are conditions changing in a way that is going to year after year produce fewer plants just because it's too challenging for them? And then you have the, have the added insult or impact of harvester ants taking the seeds away. And that's going to gradually whittle down that seed bank. So there's just not much of a reserve left for them. Mm -hmm. um, I think the problem probably is, is most severe in small populations, populations that are already not producing a lot of plants. Mm -hmm. They may be on the margins of the distribution or in areas that are highly degraded. And so they have all those problems to contend with and then they have ants every year just taking away all the reproduction that's occurred. Right. So that's, that's a concern. Other populations seem more buffered, at least now, but whether they will be in the future, that depends on how things change out there. Right. Right. So, I mean, it sounds like when you have the type of situation that we have in the NCA, right, where you have wildfire wiping out the native shrub habitat and invasive annuals kind of taking over, that those conditions are leading to increased populations of harvester ants, maybe? I would say certainly of harvester ants. Okay. We often describe them as a, a native species that is acting like uh, a, weedy, a weedy species here in that suddenly there's new environment that is ideal for it. Normally their numbers would have been kept more in check by the presence of sagebrush. There's just not that many places where, it can, where the ants can nest in such high numbers. But now with these large tracts of land that are being cleared of sagebrush and um, annual grasses like uh, Sandberg's bluegrass, um, also exotic mustards, other non-native species are great forage for them. And so we see their densities going up and that could have an adverse effect on uh, slick spot peppergrass for sure. So ant numbers, yes, they're affected by that. In other ways though, when you have these disturbances, you can have exotic species move in that provide extra food for insects. So you could have um, things like tall tumble mustard, which is an invasive uh, flowering plant. It's 
bright yellow flowers come up in the spring and lots of bees and, and flies love to go there and feed on the nectar. And so that may be actually helping their populations. It doesn't mean it's a good thing overall ecologically because the plants could be starving out other native species and, mm -hmm. and causing problems for their pollination or what have you. But it's, I guess the point is it's always a little more complicated than it seems in terms of what are the repercussions of these changes. So it can benefit some species and not others. And until you get down in the ground and try to analyze this, uh, you're sort of left with a lot of speculating, but no real information to make conclusions. Yeah, I think that's definitely a general theme in, in this podcast is, yeah. <laughs> is, is the more we dive into these issues, the more we realize uh, there's like how many unknowns there are, right? Um, even the, in these systems that maybe like from the surface or from like a few paces back seem like they're really well studied. There's always a lot of unknowns, right? Yeah, uh, that's an interesting comment because I mentioned earlier how I was uh, initially um, approached to look at the pollination biology of this rare plant. Mm -hmm. And that's what I did. I went out there and I, I studied the pollinators during the flowering season, which is in uh, late May and through June. And I would see that the flowers are producing seeds through their fruit pods. And I'd sort of uh, dust myself off and go home thinking I've had a good field season and I've taken care of it and the, the plants are being pollinated and all is good. And then I had a graduate student um, who came one year, this is about a, a decade ago, and was interested in a project. And I said, well, why don't you go out to these sites and just look around, see what you see, you know, be just an enthusiastic biologist looking for questions. And he went to a site of peppergrass out in uh, just near Eagle in the foothills. And he came back and he said, do you know there are ants all over these plants? And I said, no, I haven't seen that. Um, the site he went to is about a month ahead of the sites that I go to. So it was already past its flowering phase mm -hmm. and the fruits were now mature, the seeds were ready to drop and ants were all, they were climbing on these plants and taking the fruits off. Mm -hmm. And it sort of dawned on me at that time is that, you know, it's, we get sometimes tunnel vision about our research. I was doing the pollinators. I have no idea if there were ant colonies near where I was sitting studying those pollinators. And they were just biding their time mm -hmm. for when the seeds were ready and then they would do their thing. And so as an ecologist, it's important to always have your eyes open and to think of your study organ or know your study organism. Think about it more holistically and, and seasonally or, or you know, throughout the season as opposed to little snapshot, que snapshot questions. And uh, yeah, it was a, a good lesson for me because it opened up a whole new avenue of research, but also it pointed out that all the things I was seeing with pollination, while it was good news for the plant because they were being pollinated well, um, there's a downside for the plant and that, you know, not long after harvester ants come in and take a lot of those seeds. So yeah, it's, you have to know when to, you have to know the questions to ask. Mm. And to do that, you have to really know the animals or plants that you're studying. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, it's important to keep your eyes wide open and be open to new ideas and really observe your systems at different times of the year. Right. So I, I guess sort of like our theme for this season of the podcast is prey, prey species. And, you know, in, insects kind of fall into that category. There are some birds of prey that will directly take uh, uh, some species of insects. Um, probably not harvester ants, but like surely there are 
predators of harvester ants, and we have a situation where dramatic landscape changes that have occurred in the NCA are right. leading to increased populations of harvester ants. Is there predation of harvester ants that's like keeping po populations in check? That's a good question. I mean, I guess to start, I would say ants are typically very well defended against predators, mm -hmm. most things, because they, you know, if you've ever been near a harvester ant colony, they have a pretty nasty sting. It burns, and that's just with one ant. If you get into a colony, it can be pretty nasty. Um, there are natural predators. One of them are uh, one of them's horned lizards. Mm. But at the sites I go to, apart from out near Glens Ferry and Hammett Hills, um, I don't see any of these horned lizards. I mean, they're out in the other places, but in small numbers. Mm -hmm. um, and in the 20 plus years I've been studying this plant in the NCA and other areas, uh, I haven't seen any horned lizards there. Mm -hmm. There are other types of lizards, but I don't think they feed on the ants. There's some reports that birds might take, you know, smaller birds might peck away at ants. I've never seen that. I've never seen anything hovering around a nest trying to get at the ants. Um, we've had situations where a colony dies and there's dead ants around the periphery they don't disappear, they just sit there day after day after day, so nothing's taking them. Um, so I'd say it's actually, they really don't have here uh, much in the way of predation pressure. And, you know, even with the explosion of these nests, right, the changing, it, that may be only one aspect, right, the food availability, but those sites being very open and grassy and disturbed is not conducive to having a, a vibrant, you know, reptile population. Right. And so we don't see horned lizards in those areas anymore. Right. I've only seen them in areas with lots of sagebrush. So um, I'm sure they were there at one time, but they just aren't anymore. That's uh, a common theme in, in this area is that the habitat is changing in, in pretty dramatic ways. And, and while it may be supportive of um, some very sort of larger charismatic species, birds of prey perhaps, and, and changing um, the availability of small mammals and their prey, and that could be all beneficial. Uh, that doesn't mean that all animals benefit. And so there could be things like harvester ants doing great, but their predators are being driven out because of changing landscapes. And, um, you know, all these things are intertwined. And so that's always important when trying to assess ecological consequences that we don't put on sort of taxonomic blinders and only sort of assess it through one lens, mm -hmm. that there's all sorts of things that can be going on. And even if one animal or plant seems to be doing well, if it has a cascading effect on other things that ultimately will affect that, that species, there could be in time uh, a change in fortune for the things that seem to be benefiting. So that's right. just a, one of the complexities of eco ecological research is that everything's connected in some way and it's important to figure out where those connections have their greatest impact. I've been thinking a lot about these reports about like widespread insect declines that have been, you know, uh, the insect apocalypse. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. what's your perspective on that? Well, I mean, there's certainly a lot of evidence, you know, from an accumulation of studies done worldwide that in many places insect numbers are going down. And it doesn't necessarily mean that there aren't a lot of insects number wise in an area, but maybe the uh, the diversity of those insects is changing or the types of insects you find there is changing. And, you know, it's it's well documented that monarch butterflies have pretty much disappeared. And I can, 
you know, attest to that in my entomology class. And back in 2000 and the early 2000s, we used to collect them regularly. They were common. And uh, I have students make insect collections and we always had a few monarchs. And now, one, I tell them, don't collect monarchs if you see one, but we almost never see them, right? They just aren't around. So there are some cases where it's very clear that declines are occurring. I think a little more insidious are all the changes that are occurring that are under the radar. Right. The little things we don't even know they're there. Mm -hmm. And if you don't know they're there, you don't know when they're disappearing. And, you know, I, I think that's the sort of overriding concern. And, and from what I've read, it sort of uh, the losses to insects have been often described as death by a thousand cuts. It's not one thing per se that is causing these declines worldwide, certainly not. Um, but even locally, it can be, you know, slight changes in climate and precipitation in the landscape and the um, land use and all those things. Um, what sort of exotic species are coming in? Does it have a positive effect on some insects, but to the detriment of others, mm -hmm. right? All those competitive interactions are hard to know ahead of time. Um, so yeah, that around here, the, the biggest concern I would have is just this transformation of sagebrush steppe into grassland. And that's precipitated by the changing wildfire fire cycle. And, you know, it, uh, it has such a profound effect on everything, the vegetation, the plants and animals that, you know, coexist. And like I say, there's probably just a lot of things that are under our radar. You know, I, I couldn't tell you about a certain species increasing a number or decreasing a number. Sure, I see a lot of insects when I'm out in the field. Uh, plants are getting pollinated, yes, but I, you just have no idea what sort of um, insects are being affected adversely or some that are benefiting, which ones have been driven out of an area that 30 years ago they may have been abundant in. We just don't know. Um, you know, compared to say, you know, large vertebrates where we might have more of a, a detailed record over the years of where things occurred and their numbers and people have experiences and they can say, oh yeah, their numbers are increasing or declining. We can't say that with many insects. Um, you know, I, I don't see many bumblebees out in the NCA. I don't know if historically there were lots, but I don't see them now. And I suspect that things have changed in ways that are just not conducive to them. Um, but, you know, lots of other insects seem to be thriving. Whether that's a healthy ecosystem thriving or it's just resilient insects taking advantage of disturbed situations, I can't say. But it certainly is a concern. And I think the overriding goal should be, or at least uh, the ideal would be, can we get our uh, habitat closer to its natural state of sagebrush steppe? That's a tall order. and we're dealing with cheatgrass invasion and other exotic species that we don't have a good remedy for. We can try and slow its spread. We can try and find things that will outcompete it. But, you know, an example would that be, uh, of that would be um, adding Sandberg's bluegrass to areas because it's a competitor for cheatgrass. Mm -hmm. uh, it also happens to be a favorite food of harvester ants. And so you solve one problem and you create another. Mm -hmm. um, that's always a, a problem when you're trying to do these um, you know, uh, management issues is you have to look at it from many different perspectives, weigh the pros and cons. And, you know, ideally we'd have sagebrush just coming back, uh, low understory, not a lot of uh, um, annual grasses at all within this, the sagebrush, but we're not there yet. And so that is a concern for sure. 
Right, and it's easy for me to wrap my brain around how you would say, like, do a population survey for a raptor. Mm -hmm. But if you were to say, do a population survey for like a grasshopper species or a a bumblebee species, like, I don't even know how you would approach that. And uh, you know, it's, it's like, if somebody came to you and was like, somebody high up decided that it was really important for us to know like what insect populations, like how they're changing in this landscape that's dramatically changing. Um, We've got unlimited funds, put together a team of like however many people it takes, like where would you even start, you know? As far as things like the insect population question, um, in many ways I would find it easier if you wanted to know about a particular species. Is this bumblebee here or what type of grasshopper? Because you could, you know, set out traps and monitor and, and do that. The more difficult question starts to come in when we talk about what about the insect community and the, the long-term changes in those communities because there are just so many types of insects out there. And their numbers naturally go up and down year by year, depending on all sorts of things. Mm-hmm. Um, so what I would recommend in those circumstances is maybe phrase or constrain your question around some sort of ecological idea like what are the bee communities in terms of pollination of uh, native plant species or how are they affected by um, non-natives, which is what one of my graduate students is looking at. Mm. And that sort of allows you to focus more closely on a manageable question as opposed to saying, hey, what's out there and is it changing? Because you know, I could spend the rest of my career trying to do that and probably would collect, you know, thousands and thousands of bottles of ethanol with insects in them and never have the time to go and even figure out what's there. Mm. There's just too much diversity and, you know, many of those insects may not even be named or or at least poorly understood. Um, so it, it's almost intractable at that level. But if you start to ask more direct questions, um, it could be about the decomposer species, mm-hmm. it could be about pollinators, it could be about seed predators, mm-hmm. it could be about parasites or things like that. Mm-hmm. Then you have maybe more of a target because you could start to um, strategize what kind of traps will you use, where are you gonna put them, when's the best time of year to put them. You'd still have to look at it over time and that becomes very difficult because you know, it sounds like you know three or five years, oh, that's a long time. But in the terms of looking at population trends, it's not because in any one of those years or in several, you might have events that cause populations to go up or go down mm-hmm. and that doesn't capture a longer term trend. But the uh, you know unlimited funds you spoke of just aren't out there. And so doing a 30 year study of all the insects and how they change, that's just not going to happen. Mm-hmm. What's more feasible is to have, you know, biologists who are collecting data and maybe on the side are gathering information about certain groups and over time they start seeing patterns and they can say, oh yeah, I've noticed that there's been a decline in something. But um, making that the, the you know, initial goal is probably very difficult as say it would be for studying golden eagle populations or something where you have long-term data mm-hmm. and monitoring and so you have a better sense. But when you start to get into the arthropods and just say, hey, what's out there? it becomes just a a massive question that's almost impossible to answer. Right, right. You know, when we talk about predator-prey interactions and raptors in the NCA, there's a clear keystone species, right? The the ground squirrels. I mean, like in in the insect communities in, in the NCA or in like just 
Great Basin high desert ecosystems in general, like, is there a keystone species? Is there a species where if, like, there were dramatic de declines, it would really significantly affect all other aspects of the system? Yeah, that's, boy, that's a tough question to answer. <laughs> um, you know, when I, when you first were asking the question, or talking about uh, predators and prey, I was thinking of uh, burrowing owls, they often eat grasshoppers and things like that. Mm -hmm. So they don't always take mammals. The insects can become part of the diet for some of these things. Mm -hmm. um, but more to your question, I guess I could say through my own experience, uh, things like harvester ants are not necessarily considered keystone species, but we, we often refer to them as ecosystem engineers mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. their activities change the environment in ways that alter the plant community and the animal community around them. Mm -hmm. And so they can have a profound effect that way. Um, but, you know, I'm, I'm hard pressed to think of, you know, a species of insect that sort of underpins all the, the uh, interactions that go on out there. Um, you know, I would say more, if you look functionally, things like pollinators are really important. Mm -hmm. And if, if the landscape is changing in a way that is not inducive for pollinator populations to thrive, then that could be a problem, mm -hmm. right? But, you know, that's, uh, yeah, it's not a keystone species as opposed to more of just um, ecosystem function and the, the functional groups that are, are critical. And pollinators would be one, but there are, you know, other types as well. Right, right. Have you thought about mitigation strategies for harvester ants to protect slick spot peppergrass? Yeah, <laughs> certainly <laughs> we think of those things. Uh -huh. um, you know, you, you can start with the, uh, the ideal situation is to restore sagebrush steppe habitat so that it's not conducive to high numbers of ants. Mm -hmm. But like you were saying earlier, sometimes you just can't get there from here. Mm -hmm. And you know, it, that may be an ultimate goal, but it's not a practical one mm -hmm. in the short term. Mm -hmm. um, you know, another thing I've I've mentioned as a possibility is that certainly in maybe high valued areas, populations that are either particularly sensitive, maybe on the fringes of the, the species, maybe you do spot kill some ant colonies to try and take away that predation pressure and allow the slick spot to regenerate in terms of its seed bank. But it's also not a large scale solution, right? The, right. the, the amount of land you'd have to cover and when harvester ants are found every 20 meters, you know, you can't just kill all the harvester ant colonies. Yeah. They do serve an important purpose in terms of seed predation, mm -hmm. right? That's mm -hmm. part of their ecological role. Um, it's just that it can be maybe exacerbating the problem for slick spot peppergrass. So there may be short-term um, local efforts to try and, uh, you know, replenish seed banks in certain areas. Mm -hmm. that's, that's possible. But the harvester ants themselves you know, on an annual basis would start to recolonize areas. So it's not like you kill a colony and you're fine for right. 20 years. It could be later that year, a new one starts to pop up. Right. And it wasn't there because there was already one present and it was out competing any new ones that were initiating. So it would be an ongoing battle. Um, I think it only has merits in the short term as just stopgap measures to maybe preserve some, um, you know, genetic diversity within a population right. or, and maybe only in years where the plants are not doing so well. Because then, you know, from my research, I've shown that when the plants aren't 
larger number, the ants can take just about everything that, that goes in the slick spot, all the seeds. Whereas if you have a really good year, the pressure's not there so much, mm -hmm. and maybe you focus your efforts elsewhere. Mm -hmm. um, the good thing with, with uh, control of ant colonies is that it's very um, specific to the ants. We use baits that we put on the ant mound, and the ants take that below ground. Um, it basically disturbs their metabolism to the point where they run out of energy and die, but it's not something that has um, much in the way of adverse effects for other animals. Gotcha. It's below ground. Right. And so we think it's sort of very, uh, at least not um, problematic for other reasons, right? There's no big mm -hmm. spillover effect mm -hmm. of this uh, um, tactic. But again, it's just the scale at which you'd have to do it. it doesn't make it a practical thing and right. as a conservation measure. It's just maybe stopgap. Right. Thinking long-term, and big picture about slick spot peppergrass, I wonder if like assisted migration is something you've thought about. You mean relocating? Like, yeah, uh-huh, uh-huh. Uh -huh. okay. It's like you have a species with such a small range and it's like we've seen really dramatic landscape changes yep. up until now, but we also know with nearly 100% certainty that like we've only seen the tip of the iceberg with regard yeah. to changes from climate change right. like it's you know I mean I, I've been asking all the researchers I interview this question about like like thinking big picture like you know if we think 20 30 40 50 years into the future like it's it's virtually impossible to imagine what, what the landscape out in the NCA will look like yeah. if you know if we but I think we have to anticipate that those changes will be a lot more dramatic than what we've already seen. Right. It might be that the only way the species survives is if like an alternative landscape right. in a different geographic area is identified. Right, so with slick-spot peppergrass, its range just naturally, or at least in any time where we've been aware of the plant at all, is pretty limited. I mean, it doesn't have a large range. It's a specialist and it's got a small distribution. Um, but, you know, I have uh, actually conducted research where I do introduce seeds into areas to see if we can get slick spots, you know, mm -hmm. growing and, and flowering and, and getting pollinated and so forth. Mm -hmm. And, you know, honestly, the success hasn't been very good. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the first year or one year after the introductions, I get a, a surge of some plants and some seed production. The, the pollinators show up and that seems fine. But then over the next several years, it just peters out. Mm -hmm they disappear. It may be a scale issue. I might not be adding enough seeds, um, but we just completed a, a study on the NCA in the Orchard Combat Training Center uh, at a site that had burned, a Union fire site back from, I think the fire was 2011. And there's a fenced in area uh, in the training center that is basically used for uh, ecological research and rehabilitation type research. And in this area are lots of slick spots. And there's even some native plants like are naturally growing there. And so we thought, okay, this is a perfect opportunity to introduce seeds here. And so we did, large scale. I mean, I think we used 22 slick spots and 13,000 seeds per slick spot. And the next year I saw three plants and they all died that same year. They grew about the size of a quarter and died. Um, and so we followed up with that by actually looking at the soil chemistry. And what we found was through a collaborator here at Boise State, Dr. Mariana DeGraff, we found that 
even though these slick spots on the surface looked like slick spots to us, when we analyzed their chemistry, they were not like a natural slick spot. It had changed, likely because of the fire that then led to a lot of invasive species and a lot of organic matter building up mm -hmm. and getting into the system. And that allows competitors to move in because it doesn't have that exclusive effect that only allows peppergrass to live there. So there's a lot we need to know. When we introduce seeds to an area or plant plugs or something like that, we do need to know if the slick spot is what it appears to be. Right. Because there may be a reason why it's not colonized now, is that it mm -hmm. looks like a slick spot, but as far as the plant is concerned, it's not. Mm -hmm. The other factor that is really important, and it's something that the genetics research is hopefully going to um, enlighten us, is that we can't exclude the possibility that throughout the plant's range, that local populations are specifically adapted to the conditions in that local area. Sure. This plant has a very unique um, genetic system, uh, lots of variability as possible, and it could be that um, if you are going to relocate seeds, you may have to relocate them from a very local area where you collected them. Yeah, yeah. You can't just sort of send them across the distribution and say, well, it's all the same plant, mm -hmm. because one, you may be contaminating that other area with a, quite a very different um, uh, set of genetics, but maybe even of more concern there is that it just may not thrive because it's not locally adapted to that area. Mm -hmm. We don't know that yet. Mm -hmm. That's something that we want to look into, um, but it might shape how you would design any sort of um, seed introduction effort. And it's important to know this stuff. And that again, that's why we do the research is that these are important questions to address. We don't know the answers to them and we're only going to find them out if we do the research. But, um, you know, it could have a very big effect on uh, how we do things. And with rare plants, one of the big efforts has always been, or continues to be, to um, create uh, repositories for seeds. And now what we're thinking is, okay, we, we can do that at some scale, um, but it requires effort of people to go out there and do it, mm -hmm. a place to store the seeds, but maybe also to store them very much according to where they were collected. I mean, we would keep that information, but that may be critical to future efforts to um, replenish areas. You can't just take the seeds and throw them in a big pile mm -hmm. necessarily. Maybe the research will say, hey, it doesn't matter, they're all just the same throughout, in which case you don't have to worry about that problem. But if it is a concern, we have to be aware of that. So we're doing this research, hopefully that'll inform um, management efforts. And that's our goal is to do the science, but inform through science-based practices what the best uh, or what the best management strategies might be. And we can provide that information to the agencies and then let them make the decisions about how they want to move forward. That was our conversation with Boise State University professor, Dr. Ian Robertson. If you'd like to learn more about Dr. Robertson's research, you can find relevant links on the show notes page on our website. Check out birdsofpreyncapartnership.org. Dedication Point is a production of the Birds of Prey NCA Partnership in association with the Wildlands Collective and with support from the Conservation Lands Foundation. 
Today's episode was produced by myself, your host, Matt Podolsky. Our theme song is by Like a Rocket. <laughs>